Good morning, church family. As we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's epistle to the churches at Galatia. Galatians chapter 5 is where we're going to begin as we continue in our series entitled Cultivated in His Character. Uh, Last week, uh, I wasn't with you. I had the privilege of being with our chapel choir as they were leading worship in Severance, Colorado, one of our church planters outside of the Fort Collins area. And I, I wish I could just bottle all of you up and allow you to have been where I was last Sunday to be able to see God using our students, our chapel choir students, in such a powerful way to bless uh, that congregation and to serve alongside of them. Uh, their pastor, Pastor Josh, he sent me an email toward the end of the week that I just thought you as a church family would want to hear about how God used uh, many of your children and how God used the children of our church, our students to be able to be uh, bright ambassadors, not only for our church, but more importantly, for our Lord. This is Josh Green, who's the pastor at Calvary Church in Severance, Colorado. I want to thank you and all of Dawson, especially the chapel choir team, for joining us on Sunday and serving with us today. Uh, That day was, was last Thursday. You have an amazing group of leaders and students, and we're so blessed by you guys had numerous people contact me and say how blessed they were by the choir joining us in worship and singing over them at the end of the service. Many had never experienced anything like that before. We're also grateful for the work that the students did today, being that Thursday. I know it may seem like menial work, but what they did today was huge in relationship building for us in our community with our town, the police chief. And the staff at the town hall were so very thankful for all of their hard work. And such things are trust building for us as a church. I love this last line. In a short time, Dawson has helped our church make Jesus non-ignorable in severance. Amen? Amen. Will you join me in thanking our chapel choir for leading us in worship? The way God used them this last week. Uh, We continue in our series entitled Cultivated in His Character. Last week, our executive pastor, Brad Gowen, did a fantastic job opening up God's Word, talking about the peace that we receive from the Prince of Peace, Jesus, our Savior. So we receive that peace as we're reconciled to a holy God. But we're also called to be ambassadors of peace. We're called to be peacemakers in our home and our workplace through the Spirit of God in us and working through us. And so this morning, we want to continue to ask the question, what does it look like to abide deeply with Jesus? What does it look like to to be cultivated in the character of our Savior? Well, it looks like, well, the characteristics that we know to be the fruit of the Spirit. Read along with me in Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. I want us to look at that fourth characteristic of a life that is cultivated in his character. What we know to be patience and we live in a day and age where patience, if we're going to be honest, is in short Supply. I think if we, if 
you're like me, you, you know what it is to, to sort of be impatient at times. You know what it is to, to be impatient oftentimes. It, it seems like it is a, a cultural norm to be frustrated and frazzled, to be impatient with those around us who might irritate us, annoy us, or do things intentionally or unintentionally to, to get in the way of the next task that we have before us. So impatience I would say it is the, the very ebb and flow of much of our life and patience, the patience that God gives us through his spirit is, is so countercultural. I have to be honest with you. I was flying back from Denver, Colorado when I started the work on the sermon there in the airport. Uh, our flight got delayed 15 minutes and then 30 minutes and then 45 minutes and everybody around me including myself were doing this when are we going to get on the plane everybody had to make connecting flights and you know the impatience that can sort of emanate from a a a boarding terminal a gate there as everybody's trying to get to their next destination I got on the flight, I opened up as we got into the air, I opened up my computer and I began to work on the sermon. I opened up the Word document and there, would you know it, was that, was that circle of death telling me that my Microsoft Word program was unresponsive. Now, again, I knew Control-Alt-Delete wasn't what closed that out, but I couldn't in that moment remember how I closed out an unresponsive uh, program on my computer. So I had text capabilities. I didn't pay the extra to get internet capabilities. I'm really cheap. And so as I was sitting there, I started texting Danielle. I started texting my other friends. Silence. They wouldn't respond to me. So what am I doing? Is that that circle is just taunting me right there, saying, you want to work, but I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to let you. And I'm just pushing frantically all of these different combinations of keys. No avail. I wanted to at 35,000 feet to bust open the window and throw out my computer. And God, all the time, was was laughing at me saying, and you get to preach on patience this Sunday. <laughs> Finally figured it out, and off we went, getting the sermon ready. I, this is a, it's a really mundane, it's a very trite example, but I tell you that example because most of us live in a place of impatience in the everyday and the mundane of life. Of course. Of course. Some of you know what it is to be met with impatience in the spiritual things of life and the, and the crossroads of life. Some of you know what it is to, to be praying for that prodigal daughter or that prodigal son to, to come to their senses and come home and you're, you're anticipating the answer to those prayers as this, uh, uh, this earthly reunion. And you wait and you wait. Some of you know what it is to be impatient as you pray for the healing of a loved one and you're, you're wondering as you pray, is God going to answer this in an eternal healing or an earthly healing? And you wait and you grow impatient. But most of us experience impatience, not in those crossroads spiritually of life, but most of us experience impatience as, as we are what? Waiting in the grocery line to check out. Most of us experience impatience when, when we're trying to get home from work and we're caught in a, in a traffic jam and we need to get there and we just feel so frustrated in the moment that something has waylaid our best laid plans. Or maybe this morning, you felt this. It's, you have this sort of internal clock, what time that everybody needs to be in the vehicle to be able to... Uh, 
put the vehicle in reverse to get to church right on time. And there's usually one person that's got a different clock and, and they were running a little bit late, and so you want to encourage them. And so you go and load up the vehicle, and you just lay on the horn, because that always works, doesn't it? <laughs> Hurry up. That horn is just so encouraging to the person that's getting ready right there. Hey, we know what it is. I, I remember Dr. Seuss in that great book, All the Places That You Will Go. He talks about being in the waiting room. Do you remember this? He talks about the challenges that we have with impatience in a variety of places. He says, we can be impatient when we're waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or no or waiting for your hair to grow, waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for wind to fly a kite or waiting around for Friday night or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake or a pot to bowl or a better break or a string of pearls or a pair of pants or a wig with curls, or just another chance. All of us here know what it is to to wait. All of us know what it is to grow impatient when when our plans don't align with exactly what is occurring here and and, and add to this that, 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 that unholy trifecta of being stressed, being hungry, being tired, and impatience can be Well, it can be the normal ebb and flow of many of our lives. I would say our culture expects that frustration is the norm, that that you should move from one outrage to the next outrage, that you should be able to go on social media and express your frustration and your impatience and be able to, to scream as loud as you can with your fingertips just how things aren't going, just like you thought they should. And our culture will tell you that, my friends, is normal. It's normal. But you, follower of Jesus, have the very source of patience that resides in you. You, follower of Jesus, have have the very source of something that is a holy counterculture to our impatient world, the very Spirit of God that is dwelling in you, and the Spirit of God testifies through you of a better way, another way, a way of patience. When we look at God through Scripture, we see that at His character is a God who is long-suffering, a God who is slow to anger, a God who is patient. Notice the witness of the Psalter, Psalm 103. We read verses 8 through 14 that the Lord is merciful and gracious. You can underline that next phrase. It means patient, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows, I love verse 14, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We're created in the image of God. And this means that God knows us intimately better than we know ourselves. 
He knows our finitude. He knows our frailty. He knows that you and I, that we are prone to wonder. And as a perfect father, he remembers our frame. And he is a God that does not overlook sin. He is a God that doesn't say, oh, boys are going to be boys. They'll grow out of this. No, he is a God of justice. He's a God of judgment, but he is also a God of mercy, forgiveness, love, and patience. We see this all throughout Scripture. You open up the very first pages of the Bible and you turn to the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve, they, they do the one thing that God prohibits and there is consequences for it. He does not ignore their sin. So they're banished from the Garden of Eden, and as they're packing their U-Haul, and there are two angels that are guarding the gates so that they'll never come back again. It's in that moment that God shows his patience, love, and tenderness as he clothes them in their shame, a shame that they had never felt before. And as they're leaving the Garden of Eden, he promises redemption in their lineages as there will be one who comes behind them that will crush the head tempted Adam and tempted Eve. Fast forward to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and there you see God setting free the Israelites, the whole whole nation that had been bound in bondage for over 400 years, and they come from this tyrannical rule of Pharaoh, and ultimately God brings them through the parting of the Red Sea, and they, they still have water fresh behind their ears when they get out of their bondage, they get out of their captivity, and they say to Moses, What's the menu going to be like? All this stuff about manna. I remember when we were in Egypt and the buffet lawns were bountiful. God calls Moses to the peak of Mount Sinai. He engages with him. Moses comes down with two tablets, what we know to be the Ten Commandments, and it's there that that nation that God had called to be a holy nation, a chosen, set-apart nation, they're fashioning their jewelry into idols and worshiping idols full of debauchery right there as, as Moses has the very glory of God that is fresh upon him and radiating him. They are doing that, and it's in this moment that God said, I've had enough. And if you remember Moses, a chosen leader, he intercedes for the nation of Israel. And how does he do that? He does that by saying, we know who you are. We know your character. Notice what he says in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious. Notice that phrase again slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Notice again that that balance of judgment, that balance of wrath, that balance of justice in conversation with an infinitely perfect God who is the God of grace, mercy, love, and patience. We see this exemplified in the ministry of Jesus. He shows up and he calls disciples to be his followers. And these disciples consistently misunderstand his message. They're consistently wanting to crown him. They want that messianic ministry and kingdom to be set up. And Jesus is always having to say, no, 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 no. My my rule is not one of political and military uh, might. 
but it is to be one of a suffering servant. And if you remember in this moment, the, the disciples in, in the place where Jesus needs them the most, right there upon the cross is when they cower in fear. Only one, the beloved, would, would stay by his side on the cross. Judas would betray him with a kiss. Peter three times would say, I don't know him, I don't know him. And in the strongest words that he could say, I don't know him. And there upon the resurrection, when Jesus comes back, who does he come to? He comes to these disciples, the very ones who denied him, the very ones who ran in fear. It is these, Peter himself, that he comes to and says, you will be my rock. You will be the one that I established the church with. He doesn't wipe the slate clean and start anew. It is these that he is patient with. And he is patient with you. You see, we're like the Israelites. We're like those disciples. We are like Adam and Eve. We are sinners just alike. We are prone to wander. And God, in his graciousness, extends patience to us. His love and his mercy and his tenderness to us. I love the way Peter would say in his second epistle that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. God's patience has a purpose. And, and that providential purpose is for you to trust in a patient, loving God in his mercy for your life through his son, Jesus. Uh, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, has this catalog, this litany of sins that he, he outlines in Romans chapter 1. And then he talks about the judgment of God upon sinners. And then he comes to Romans 2, verse 4. Don't presume, or do you presume, on the richness of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant for what? It is meant to lead you meant to lead me to repentance. Our patient God paves the way for your salvation and my salvation as we trust him through his mercy and his love, through the finished work of Jesus. And as we are those that have been captivated by the grace of a patient God, so we are called to show the character of God in our words and our actions. We can't do that in our own strength. Of course we can't. But the Spirit of God, as we abide deeply with Jesus, flows through us to, to show this countercultural witness of what patience looks like in an impatient world. Now, that requires you and me to make decisions on a daily basis. We have to take up our cross. We have to choose to do what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul, what does patience look like? Well, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you may also forgive. Patience requires your participation. Patience is not letting go and letting God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in and through you and the decisions that you make empowered by his spirit in an impatient world, we must make choices. What choices do we make? We make the choice to bear with one another. I love that phrase because there's just such a multitude of applications in our family life, in our work life, at the waiter or the waitress that you're going to see in just a, a few moments after this service here, bearing with one another. That, that at times means that, that we overlook what seem to be slights. 
Do you know you can go through life consistently looking for the way that people are wronging you, misunderstanding you, overlooking you, you, you can go through life as a follower of Jesus. You can do this, and you can see the worst in people around you. Or you can show forbearance, patience, to see the best in others, to, to be able to feel this empathy toward others that, that maybe that, that word that they said or the word that they didn't say, the, the passing in the hall where they didn't acknowledge you or maybe they acknowledge you too uh, boisterously, that all of that wasn't to harm you. It was a part of something far greater than you. Patience is forgiving others quickly. It is not taking everything personally. Now, this is difficult. It's difficult not only outside in the world, but it's difficult in the church. It's difficult with those people that are sitting next to you. I, I love this way, this little poem that has floated around from uh, pulpits to pulpits talks about the difficulty of showing patience. He says, to dwell in love with the saints above, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, oh, that's a different story. And we feel that. We feel that really closely. We, we feel the pull to impatience consistently in each part of our day. But when you choose the path of patience, when, when, you, when you move upstream from the cultural norms that say it's always okay to be frustrated, it's always okay to be frazzled, it's always okay to be showing people and saying how everybody's disappointed you. When you, when you move up through the Spirit of God and you push against that cultural stream, it makes, it makes a pathway for the Holy Spirit to work in extraordinary ways. And you've seen that, haven't you? You've seen the way that patience can diffuse some of the most tense of conversations. You've seen the way where kindness can diffuse anger and frustration. I've seen it. I guess it was about 20 years ago, Danielle and I had a U-Haul. We loaded it up. We finished at Beeson Divinity School here in Birmingham. We headed to New Orleans to start another program. I started pastoring in a Mississippi Gulf Coast town called Pasagula, Mississippi. First church, I was 23 years old. We had a van ministry. Many of you are familiar with that. We would take the van through the community, pick up children. We would bring them back to the church. had a children's church just for those children. Miss Mary was on the pastor search team. Her husband didn't attend church, but we thought it would be a way to sort of have an have a, uh, opportunity, a bridge to reach out to him. So he drove our church van, and he loved doing it. He was the first person at church. Driving that van through the community, bringing the kids back to the church, never would walk out of the van into the church, but would stay in the van. One of the things about Miss Mary's husband is he was a smoker. And over time, people begin to notice that he would be driving East Long Baptist Church van through the community, and he'd have a cigarette in hand. He'd be in the, uh, the parking lot as he dropped off the kids and have a cigarette in his hand as he was dropping them off at the end of the church service, have a cigarette in his hand. And so that became a problem. We had a deacon's meeting about it. We had four deacons. Four deacons, myself. Bill was the chairman of deacons. Don was the vice chairman. and John was the secretary. And 
Wayne was just there, I guess. You know, he <laughs> always felt sorry for Wayne. I always wanted to give him a title, you know, like Sergeant Barnes or something like that. So, so we discussed it. What are we going to do? Chairman of Deacons Bill said, Pastor, I've got it. I said, sounds great. Next Sunday morning, I come back to the church. It was probably 9 o'clock. Sunday school starts at 9.15. Miss Mary comes uh, storming into the church with a sign in hand. says, who put this in the van? Who put this in the van? I could see it from a distance. Big sign that said, no smoking with a line down the middle. Bill had put a no smoking sign in the van and didn't talk to anybody about it. That, my friends, is called passive aggressive. (laughs) (laughs) Miss Mary was furious because her husband was furious and she lit into everybody that would hear her. A bunch of hypocrites, bunch of Pharisees. I've been at this church for 50 years. Who put this in the van? Who put this in the van? I'm a freshly minted, MDiv pastor, courageous. I stood right in the middle of the hallway, looked at Miss Mary and said, he did it. He did it. (laughs) Chairman of Deacons, right there. She She just gave it to him. Up and down. I've known you for so long. I should have known that you would have done this. You would have done this. She storms out of the church, slams the door behind her. We had a bell. Do you remember this in churches where the bell would ring when Sunday school started? I kid you not. She slams the door. The bell rings. We've got to go to Sunday school. (laughs) Chairman Deacon said, David, I'll see you at 8 o'clock in the morning. We're going to go see Mary. I said, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> he said, no, we just be here. It's all going to work out. Picks me up at 8 o'clock. We head to her house. She meets us, not with coffee, not with cookies, but she meets us at her front porch and says, don't get out of the vehicle. I don't want to talk to you, Bill, preacher. I don't want you in here. I'm never coming back to that church again. Bill, the chairman of deacons, says, Mary, I've known you for 50 years. Just hear me out. Rather hesitantly, she lets us in. We sit down. I don't know if it's 15 minutes. I don't know if it's 20 minutes, 30 minutes. She just goes through the decades of the frustrations that she's had with the church that she's a member of. She comes to the end and she says, this is the last straw. I'm never stepping foot in that church ever again. Bill hasn't said anything I haven't said anything, but then he speaks. And he says, Mary, I've known you for 50 years. We've gone to church for about that same time. And if you never step foot back at East Long Baptist Church, I'm going to see you at the grocery store. I'm going to see you at the community, in the community. And this I promise you. I will treat you like you've never left. Her demeanor immediately changed. It was a lesson as I sat there and he had listened to all of these complaints and never once said, but on the other hand, I was so patient. 
And when he said, I'll treat you like you've never left, a tear ran down her cheek. And she said, Preacher, you don't know this, but three years ago, we buried my oldest daughter, Rhonda. Rhonda was baptized at East Long. She was married at East Long, and we buried her at East Long. And every time I come to church, I can't help but just to see her everywhere. For the next 20 minutes, she cried and told stories about her daughter. Bill listened, and I listened, and he said, Mary, I want to pray for you. We left. No promises to come back. No hugs of reconciliation. It wasn't next week. It wasn't three weeks later. But a few months later, I was standing up here, and I was preaching, and would you know it, Miss Mary and her husband walked in that back door and sat on the back pew. In life, almost every day you've got the decision to make, are you going to blow up a bridge or are you going to build a bridge toward reconciliation, toward healing, Every day we have the choice. Will we blow them up? Or will we build them? And in the spiritual world, the raw materials that God uses to build bridges of healing, of love, and mercy is often you listening. You being patient. God uses the patience of ordinary Christians. 20 years ago, that chairman of deacons, I never will forget that moment and how God used it to build a bridge. I have a feeling there's some bridges that need to be build, built between you and a son or a daughter. Some bridges that need to be built between you and a husband or a wife. I, I have a feeling there's some bridges that have been blown up by the person to the right or to the left of you. And maybe this week is a week where you will use the power of the Holy Spirit in you and the raw material of something so simple as listening, loving, showing the very patience of God because the Lord knows that all of us need his patience and the patience of others. Amen?